And now, KYUK's Evening News. Good evening, I'm Brenda LaPaz. And I'm Rhonda McBride. Thank you for joining us for this Wednesday night edition of KYUK News. This is KYUK Public Radio for the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta. I'm Anna Rose MacArthur. At the K300 in Bethel, Alaska, for KYUK Media, I'm Angela Denning. for 50 years. I'm Gabby Salgado. This year, we are celebrating 50 years of radio and television by highlighting a few of the people who have come through KYUK and made this station what it is today. From founders like Robert Nick and Peter Twitchell to the news reporters we hear on the radio every day, everyone who has come through the station has left an impact. Before we jump into our show for today, I just wanted to remind people to rate, review, and subscribe to this show and every other KYUK show, including our new podcast, A Bite Out of Bethel. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and NPR One. This week, guest host and news director Anna Rose MacArthur sat down with former news directors Rhonda McBride and Angela Denning to talk about their experience creating news for the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta, and how it changed their lives. Hi, Rhonda. Hi, Angela. Hi. Good to hear both of you. Yeah, it's it's so fun that we're all being able to talk together. I guess we should start by introducing ourselves. Well, I arrived at KYUK in the fall of 1988 uh, to take the job as news director. And I stayed there through... 1997. And from there, I've had a variety of jobs, but most recently, I am working for KTOO in Juneau as an arts and culture reporter, sort of back to my public broadcasting roots. Well, this is Angela Denning, and I worked at KYUK from 2002 to 2014. And so there was a little bit of a gap between Rhonda and myself, um, but I was news director for KYUK in those years. And then after that, I moved to Petersburg in Southeast Alaska to work at KFSK Radio. And I'm Anna Rose MacArthur. I'm the current news director at KYUK. I arrived in September of 2015, and now it's been almost six years here at KYUK. Happy to be here. It's interesting because in Alaska, 
there's such a high turnover really across sectors and that is included in public media and in media in general has a high turnover rate. But it seems like all three of us have stayed, you know, we stayed longer than two years, which a lot of people are always amazed at. I know when, you know, I covered Chamai for the second time and was interviewing the organizer, she was like, oh, you're still here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're here to report on Chamai again. So what kept both of you here in that position for as long as it did? Angela? Oh my gosh. Well, I loved it. I um, I love the job and then I, I loved Bethel and the region. So it's, I thought that uh, I was just surrounded by good people and um, really interesting stories to tell and share with the rest of the state. And, you know, I really like the life out there too, the, you know, outdoor activities, mushing and hunting and fishing, that kind of thing. So um, it was kind of a good life in the workplace and out of it. I remember, Angela, when I was in Nome in 2013, 2014, working at the radio station there, and I uh, kind of, you know, became aware of you through an Indie Alaska video on you being a news director in rural Alaska, and it showed you, like, riding your snow machine and going to check your uh, ice fishing net during, like, your lunch break. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this woman is so amazing. She's so Alaskan hardcore and she's able to do that and be a reporter, which I thought was awesome because it was my first year reporting. And all I could do was just like keep my head above water and go to work and like collapse at home. Yeah. I mean, it was a crazy time in my life where I look back and I'm like, how did I have so much energy starting really early? I came to work early left and then ran usually straight to the dog yard to, you know, train dogs until 10 at night or something like that. But that was pre-kids for the most part. And um, yeah, just go, go, go back when I had more energy, I think. And it is a job that's very demanding. I mean, something is always happening, but I have to share a a memory of you, Angela. I had come back to KYUK uh, for a visit and there you were uh, with John Active and, and some of the other staffers. And there was a buffet of food. And you had apparently harvested a porcupine. <laughs> <laughs> and it was nicely appointed. And I had never tried porcupine. And I said, well, how did you get that porcupine? And you explained that you came across it while you were dog mushing. <laughs> And you bopped it on the head, and I'm I'm just glad you didn't get needles all over you or anything like that. It, but mm-hmm. I was pleasantly surprised at how delicious it was, and maybe that's why I stayed at KYUBK for so many years is because there were so many delightful surprises. And one of the things that was said to me when I first arrived from the manager at the time, Jerry Brigham, is he said, "Well." Every day is going to be a surprise for you. Every day. It may be a nice surprise. (laughs) It may not be a nice surprise. (laughs) But one way or another, it's always going to be a surprise. And and I think that's a 
part of what kept me there is I never knew what was going to happen next, but also the wonderful people there that, especially from the UPIC staff that were always willing to share their culture and their food, <laughs> their fish strips. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that sentiment, Rhonda, for sure. I mean, it, for me, it was such a, such a fulfilling job and one that I felt had a, had an impact. Like it was a job that you know, was very meaningful. And there were so many stories that did need to be shared and so many important voices from elders to the youth that um, should be shared, you know, with the, with, with the state. And it was different. There were all kinds of stories every day uh, coming into the station. And um, yeah. And I always felt sort of uncomfortable by the fact that there was so much that we missed. I, I know that we worked very hard and I know you worked very hard during your time as news director, but I always left the day thinking, oh, we should have done this. We should have gotten that because really Bethel generates a lot of news, statewide news and even international news. And it's quite a treadmill <laughs> to keep up with, with the news in Bethel. But it was just, to me, a wonderful experience, always an opportunity to learn so much. And I would have to say that Bethel taught me a lot of what helped me throughout my time in Alaska. I've been here for six years now, and really a lot of the reasons I've stayed are similar to what you've already mentioned. It's the people, the people of who work at KYUK, the people in Bethel, the people across the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta. It is the food, the KYUK potlucks that occur. It's the work. It's feeling like I have meaning and purpose through my work. I'm not trying to um, just earn money for someone who doesn't care about me. I feel like I'm doing a public service through this work. And then it's the stories. And I, I had the experience of living in Nome. It was my first time in Alaska, first time doing journalism, first time doing radio. And the stories of Western rural Alaska, I just thought were extraordinary. And then I left and I went to Massachusetts and then Texas. And then I decided that I wanted to really try to make a career out of public radio journalism. And I decided, well, if I want to make this into a career and I have to wake up every day and be curious about where I am and ask questions and have that hunger to find out information, then I want to go where the best stories in the world are. And I thought that was rural Western Alaska. Then, um, a couple of months later, KYUK posted an opening and I applied and I came up in September of 2015 and I've been here ever since. Something that Angela brought up was just the changes that have occurred during all of our tenures. I'm sure we all saw a lot of changes and you already talked about just, you know, the technology, how that's changed, but just KYUK overall, how that's changed. And um, Angela, you were mentioning that. Will you talk about that some more? I know Rhonda has a grasp of, because the way I, the stories that I was told were, you know, there was this huge 
peak in the 90s of like staffing and a, a really uh, big news presence at KYUK and that kind of thing. And my 12 years, I would kind of define as like a building back period because um, the Ron Doherty, uh, my first GM at KYUK, um, had a kind of financial accounting background. And when I came on board in two, 2002, um, there was just one English person in the newsroom and one UPIC person in the newsroom. It was a two-man show. And uh, and he had, I, from what I understand, uh, Ron, the GM, had scaled back staffing dramatically to kind of make ends meet and get uh, control of the fiscal situation. Um, so staffing was scaled back. There were just two of us in the newsroom. We actually had our newsroom in the closet. Um, it's, I think it's a closet storage area now, it's kind of attached to one of the production rooms there. So it's kind of just this long, narrow space where um, you had not much room behind your chair, you know. Um, and then over the years, um, we went, we built it up to four people. So there were two English people in the newsroom and two UPIC reporters. We moved offices. Of course, we had to for space. We moved out of the closet into what was the old front porch as a newsroom. So they kind of like just built this thin wall, you know, two by four construction, like um, off the front porch, which was a very kind of uninsulated corner of the building. And it was really cold in there. Um, water would freeze on our desks overnight. And so we had a bunch of space heaters in there working and that, that lasted a few years until uh, we were able to kind of like insulate that corner and make it more hospitable. And so that's where the newsroom is today. So it, there were quite a few changes. And then when I left, I think there was, there were still four people in the newsroom. Um, and that was through, that was, we were able to do that through just a teamwork at the station. Um, Joe Siebert, a former engineer, uh, kind of uh, gave up an assistant position so we could have more uh, people in the newsroom and uh, people made some other sacrifices so we could build the newsroom back up. That is so wild to hear that change because I've heard little snippets of it. And then to think that the newsroom where the news is being produced now was once this frozen corner of the building. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause the um, front door wasn't there. It was kind of over um, off the side of the building a little bit. And that's something that has, it's always struck me about KYUK is just, if you, you know, take one walkthrough of the building, it's easy to tell like the way this exists is not how it was originally intended. You know, this is a building that has gone through many iterations of itself because the spacing doesn't follow, I think, the most logical plan. It works. We make it work. And I think, you know, in many ways, we're a scrappy organization and that allows us to have, you know, a lot of flexibility, but I, it's reflected in our building. Yeah. Rhonda, what changes did you see? Well, I suppose I should backtrack first. A, a story that I heard was that the building for KYUK was a, a prefab building that came up on a barge and apparently it was assembled incorrectly. And during its early days, parts of the building blew down after a windstorm. 
And of course, this building was built to replace the original KYUK studio, which was in a home in uh, housing. So AVCP housing. So uh, that, that was quite a journey. But by the time I got there, it was going through that process of being carved up in different ways over the years. And the newsroom at that time was in a wide area that was sort of a big hallway into the studio. And so community members were always coming through <laughs> and they might peer over your shoulder as you write. And I remember one time I came in and uh, Dario Nadi, who was a, a longtime Bethel resident, was there typing uh, a Tundra Drums message on my typewriter <laughs> with his kid. And I was like sweating bullets because I had uh, to get a story on the noon news. But that was what people did. They, they treated the station as their station, which was part of the charm of KYUK. And, you know, just remembering the typewriters, my goodness, uh, we didn't have anyone to maintain them in the community. And so every three months or so, five months, there was a man from Anchorage that was on a circuit that would go to all of the different agencies in Bethel and repair their typewriters and their copy machines. It was, it was a, a crazy time. And I must add here that Lillian Michael, who was UPIC news director at various times, was an expert at repairing those old IBM Selectrics. I've never seen anything like it. She would dig into it and, and somehow make it work again, because otherwise we'd have to wait a couple of months for the repair guy. <laughs> So our newsroom at the time was the one that made the transition from typewriters to computers. And we had volunteers in the community, a man who worked at ID Variety volunteer to help set computers up. And of, of course, that was full of glitches and some of us not being as computer friendly, <laughs> uh, tech friendly as we needed to be to come up to speed. But that was a very interesting time for KYUK to, to you know, the beginning of the digital age. Um, I would add, I guess, another change that happened in the 12 years I was there as news director was our online presence. We got on the internet and it was a very slow um, start. You know, I mean, we there was a KYUK website which didn't have much on there, just a few things, including we'd put just the whole newscast, you know. But then over the years, mainly because um, just the capacity of the internet didn't allow us to do a lot of things, but then eventually internet got a little bit better and we started to post individual stories. So that was a pretty big deal. And I think that's, I mean, now it's just, it's, uh, you know, you have a huge internet presence. And I think a lot of people, go online even to, to find the news. Which is still feels really recent because when I was at KNOM in Nome in 2013, that was the year that at KNOM we started posting individual stories to the website and not just the newscast itself and how each story had its own individual web page And which required as a radio reporter, you're writing for 
the radio, which is very different from writing for the web, which is meant to be read with the eye and not just listened to with the ear. You have to be so versatile now. You have to be able to be this multimedia reporter, do the audio, do it for the web, and then be able to gather pictures while you're out too, because now you have a dedicated web page for each story and each story needs a picture. And how it's really required, and this is, it seems like, across media where you, you, you're not just a radio reporter or really in any like one slot. You might have the most skills in radio, but you have to be able to do it all now with the yeah. birth of that digital presence. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like time time management completely shifted to, I can't, for example, I cannot imagine cutting tape like Rhonda you know, and the time it would take to do that. But at the same time, you're not online, you know, and when I, that was, I vividly remember the kind of anxiety about going online, just from what you said, Anna Rose, with, there was a whole many years where nobody saw, saw my scripts. Nobody did besides who's reading them on the air. So, you know, as long as I'm pronouncing names, right. Um, places and names of people and that kind of thing that was good enough but then you shift to online and all of a sudden you're kind of like writing your story again in a way that can be digested by a reader you know and you got to get the name spelled right and everything else mm-hmm. and in addition to that I mean to me it's wild to think that there was once a time when a news story played over the radio and then after it played it just dissipated into the ether and was maybe never heard or seen again unless there was like an active archive occurring somewhere and now it's like each each story it has this you know it's it's around as long as the web page is around it and it can circulate and it doesn't just have that moment of existence and communication and then disappearance, which is seems like a, a huge change for radio news. I really appreciate it myself. I love having things documented like that. And I think you're right. I mean, we tried to archive audio tapes and things like that, but it's just, it's very different and difficult to just kind of dig back through audio when you're looking for something. You know, I think the web presence is what has sort of given people in our state a better understanding of how important the Bethel region is, especially when it comes to Alaska Native issues. It's kind of uh, the place where almost everything happens, and there are examples of, of the issues that are experienced statewide. So... KYUK, it, I would say today, is, is really one of the pillars of the public broadcasting system, especially when it comes to the coverage of Native news. Oh, yeah. It's been interesting going down to, for instance, Alaska Press Club annual gathering of journalists in Alaska and hearing, oh, you work at KYUK and hearing other people in the community when I say I'm a journalist with KYUK. And there's, 
for many people, there is a respect associated with KYUK. And that comes from, I recognize, decades of this legacy of so many people who have worked here, who have established the reputation and the lineage and the work of hard work that's been done um, to create this this archive of the region to create the news and document what's been going on and explain what's been going on. And it's it's really exciting to be able to be a part of that. And really, KYUK is kind of on the leading edge of covering climate change. Yeah. If you think about New Talk, for example, um, I mean, I think that's been, it's been almost at least 15 years, if not 20, that that kind of uh, story has been covered of the village moving and all of that, all that that entailed. And because KYUK is following it, you can have a comprehensive view of it from start to finish, you know, um, over the last few decades of what it meant for people who lived there. Um, I think that's a an opportunity that, um, you know, doesn't come around. Uh, you get some bigger news organizations and they might kind of helicopter in and um, get a climate story like that. But when, you, when you're able to follow something like that for so many years, there's a different quality to it. Mm-hmm. It's a recruiting pitch I do too when we're trying to hire new reporters is being able to say, you are on the front lines of climate change in a way that you're not going to find in many other places in the United States. And what's more is we at KYUK are able to get you to that front line to be in the community and report on what's happening and how important it is for our coverage and for the region to be able to go to that front line. And New Talk is, is a great example of that. And of course, there's many other communities in the region now where that's spread to. And what's interesting that jumped out at me, Angela, when you said, you know, we've been covering KYK like 20 years, what's been going on with New Talk and the relocation effort there is how there are so many stories, I'm sure that all three of us have covered, you know, stories that have been around in the region for decades, like, for instance, the honey bucket and water and sewage issues, how that persists. I wonder, are there other stories? There's, of course, like the K300 that's been reported on and Chamai, those big events that's been reported on. But I'm sure that there's probably lots of stories that we've all been reporting on even across the decades. Yeah. Well, salmon. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I look back sometimes at, at, at the stories from yesterday and compare them to the stories today. And they're often very similar in, in some of the challenges that people are still struggling with, with the salmon run. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the stories I will never forget is, um, well, you're kind of calling it protest fishery, but, um, you know, fishermen said to, they, they just went out and fished and it was a closed time. Uh, but they decided it was a, you know, collaboration of a number of different villages and fishermen just went out and fished for their families anyway. And then it all went to the court system and following that in the court room was heartbreaking. And, you know, there were 
um, you know, grown men crying on the stand and I will never forget covering that. And I feel like, you know, fish and game management, a lot has changed over the recent decades, but it's still a issue that all of us have covered. Absolutely. And it's only become, it seems more restrictive since then as well with the salmon runs and being able to fish on them. Um, are you still covering the Costco River Salmon Management Working Group? Because they find that group just kind of covering that over the years was such a unique kind of thing, having representatives from the villages up and down the river um, kind of at the table talking about that on a regular basis. We are, we're still covering that. And I covered that, I think like four years, it was every once a week, every week for many months uh, in the summer. And then uh, this year has been split between myself and Greg Kim, but I, I had this interesting moment because I went to a meeting in person a couple weeks ago and there were just a handful of people in the room and we were all spaced apart and the rest of the people were on the teleconference. And I looked around at two of the elders in the room who I've seen in that same room at these meetings since, you know, I arrived and I was looking at them and I was able to see like how they've aged over the six years that I've been here and how they look older and their their posture has changed. Um, but the issues are the same and how I'm in this room too. And I know I look older and I have more gray hairs and I've learned so much about this issue, but it still is so complex to me. And I feel like we're always having a different conversation over what's happening now, but yet how it feels like it's so much of the same conversation over the years. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I really appreciate during my time at KYUK was being able to collaborate with the UPIC staffers because they added a whole other level of meaning to the story. And I can think of an example when covering fisheries issues and of course the debate about when to fish and not to fish and whether or not there's gonna be enough for subsistence. I remember one of the UPIC staffers saying, and it probably was John Active, I think, that said, nikah, that is a word that is used for both salmon and for food interchangeably. And just to get that little nugget of information suddenly tells you how important subsistence is. Yeah, I also, Rhonda, completely relied on um, the UPIC staff that I worked with in the newsroom uh, just helping me understand what was happening with the stories that I was working on and having that perspective was um, fundamental and, you know, I, I, I needed it to understand what I was reporting on, I think, to understand um, the kind of cultural complexities of a lot of things. Cause I was just, uh, you know, I'd been there for, even for how many years, but still I'm an outsider, you know, and um, just, and there was a lot of generosity of knowledge also at KYUK uh, with uh, staff sharing that kind of um, cultural knowledge with one another. I really appreciated that. You know, one of the things it, that, that's 
sticks in my mind, kind of this, one of my very first memories at KYUK was there was a controversy at the time over the Kilbuck caribou herd near Gleithluck. And the local uh, elders had said, you know, there are enough caribou to hunt. We see them every day when we go out on our snow machines. There's no reason why we should not hunt. And Fish and Games numbers said, oh, no, uh, there's still a shortage. It's not good to hunt. But again, you have to remember that they do their surveys often from airplanes in various kinds of weather. And it's more likely that the people who live in the community and are out every day would have a better grasp of how many caribou there are. And so they went against Fish and Game and went ahead and hunted. And Lillian Michael, who was the UPIC news director at the time, uh, was eating some caribou and she looked at me and she said, do you want to try? This is illegal caribou. <laughs> and for some reason, you know, I, I, it was like the beginning that that bite of that caribou was like the beginning of my kind of understanding what was going on. And of course, later through the legal process, uh, it was determined that the community of Queethlick, the tribe of Queethlick was absolutely right, that there were enough caribou and fish and game was wrong. And so I, I just, as time went on, uh, really learned to trust and value native knowledge. And I wonder if either of you went through that transformation of kind of really appreciating the long traditional knowledge that people have. Sure. I mean, when I was, I guess, lucky before KYUK, I worked for a couple of years at the Tender Drums newspaper um, and they went through some changes. And so I decided to try radio, which was, um, you know, oh my gosh, I was pretty nervous about that. Um, and I, so, and I had visited Bethel cause I had family there. So I had visited in the, in the mid nineties a little bit, spent a couple summers. And so I kind of had, you know, I knew something about the place and I had some family in Bethel and, you know, and then when I was at the newspaper, I traveled to most of the villages in the region. Um, but what was different going to KYUK was having, um, UPIC reporters in the newsroom all the time, every day. And it was just, I mean, it was everything to, um, you know, have that in the newsroom. It's one thing to just kind of know it on the surface. And it's one thing to be able to talk to somebody every day about it. I agree. It's, it's, a, it's what makes KYUK the special, unique place that it is. The cross-cultural, bilingual people the the work that's done how it exists in that space in a way that i is very unique in alaska it's unique in the rest of the nation and to be able to talk to julia who is um definitely the person who i talked with the most and then also with John active before he passed and be able to try to start getting a grasp on 
I feel like I'm constantly a guest and I, and I don't think that that will ever go away. And I, and I hope it doesn't in a way that requires like immense humility where the longer I'm here, I feel like the less I know because there's such a depth of knowledge. And it's one of the things I know that's kept me here for as long as it has. Speaking of Akum Kuchik, uh, John Active, he, I think probably I worked with him and Lillian Michael the most in the newsroom and uh, Julia in the latter years, for sure, Julia Jimmy. Um, but Akum Kuchik seemed to have an affinity for the uh, new reporters coming in and and teasing them and um, educating them um, in fun ways about the culture. And I just, looking back, appreciate that so much because um, there's such a huge learning curve. Because there, there were some reporters who were brought in from the lower 48 and who really didn't know, you know, they land and they're in a different country. So where do you start? And it was fun to see him. I mean, he would do everything. For, he'd draw cartoons, hang them on the walls, um, you know, and just through his storytelling. And then, of course, um, Lillian also had a great sense of humor and was, able, and was generous as well with uh, sharing cultural knowledge. Which amazed me because I, I witnessed that too with John and then with Lillian that she would come in and out of town to help KYUK for usually big events like the K300 and some other instances when she would come into town was how many decades have they been here? How many new people have they seen to come in and out and to still have that generosity and that abundant humor to go along with it was really amazing because I've, I've seen other people in Bethel who there is a transient population here who have, you know, they don't have energy that they're going to give to new people and to be able to see that from John and Lillian and really so many other people here at KYUK give it so constantly. It was, it's really, really special. I just feel like KYUK newsroom is a heavyweight in the state. Um, like you said, Anna Rose, people, you know, um, they know who you are when you go to Anchorage and um, it's because they, there's a presence, a statewide presence. You're on the air regularly and I, uh, the structure in the newsroom is set up where those stories are, are able to be shared statewide. And um, I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to be part of that too when I did. I think we should wrap up soon, but is there anything else that we should share before we go? I would have to say, and Angela, I bet you would agree that really some of the best reporting in the Alaska Public Media Network comes out of KYUK, some of the most compelling stories. Well, I think that's, uh, maybe I'm biased, but I think that's the way it's always been um, from everything that we've talked about this last hour, from the the people that, you know, the voices and the stories, what the story's about, and, um, and then just the people at the radio station, uh, you know, sharing the stories. I, that's why I call it a heavyweight. It's, um, yep. Well, there are people like um, Corey Flintoff, yeah. <laughs> for example. There, there's some public radio heavyweights out there that uh, descend from the, the KYUK lineage. So 
it's had quite an impact. But Anna Rose, when I was there, I always had a wish list of, of where we could go next, what we could do next. And I'm curious, going forward into the future, at this 50-year anniversary, what are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about this next phase of COVID most immediately <laughs> and how we're going to continue operating uh, because we were a remote newsroom so much of next year and what that's going to look like. So that's my most immediate thing that's on my mind. And so much of our newsroom is built on being able to go out in the community, being able to go out in communities across the region and how that has been so stripped down since this pandemic started shutting those doors. And, but I think what you're asking is more beyond that. In my wildest dreams, I would like to have at least a dozen reporters. I think that is the minimum number we need in order to do an adequate job covering this region. And I would have reporters stationed around the region, not just concentrated in Bethel, but being able to have bureaus, if you will, and being able to hire locally from the region to fill those bureaus and be able to have the reporting being done more regularly closer to other communities in the region. That would be my grand, grandest vision coming true. And I hope one day that we were able to realize that and financially build ourselves up to where we are like that. Um, and then also the pandemic has given us um, a pathway of understanding the technology that we would need in order to have those remote bureaus actually set up around the region, hopefully one day. So the gift of the pandemic, perhaps. Well, the, the lessons we're able to take from this. Well, it, you know, KYUK has done an amazing job covering the pandemic, despite all the challenges. So I'm sure you have many lessons that you can uh, bring forward. But I also wondered about UPIC News, where that's going. Because one of the, my biggest fears when I worked at KYUK was that without Lillian, who is now gone, without Alexi Isaac, who is now gone, without John Acton, <laughs> that, that maybe UPIC News would be in danger of disappearing without really uh, a staff that has a strong grasp of both languages. And that's something that I wonder about myself and I think all of us at KYUK do. Currently we don't have any reporter on staff who is UPIC and what we're trying to do is create a pipeline with high schoolers and college students where we're able to bring them into the newsroom as interns either with LKSD or um, an internship that's separate from LKSD and be able to teach what is journalism, how to report here and really allow, we have a intern right now who came up through Lower Kuskokwim School District working with KYUK and now has graduated and is continuing to intern and being able to talk with her over what's, what's interesting to you? How would you cover this and be able to 
be able to have her voice and her perspective in the newsroom, and then hopefully be able to build upon that and us be able to provide a pipeline for both journalists from the region, but also if we're able to provide a pipeline of just creating journalists from this region, even if they don't stay at KYUK, if if they're able to be able to be added into the people making media be able to be able to have that voice and that perspective and know that we were able to help a little bit with that would be tremendous. Well, I love your dream, Anna Rose. I back it completely. (laughs) Well, thank you both so much for your time. It was so fun being able to talk with the two of you and being able to just hear stories about this newsroom that I've become so endeared to and be able to hear how the two of you contributed to this legacy that we're all just a part of. And how that legacy shaped us too. I mean, I I don't think you can work at KYUK for any period of time and, and not be changed in some way. And, and I feel that it, it, my time at KYUK enriched my life in so many ways, and I'm so grateful for it. It's been really great hearing uh, both of you talk about the years at KYUK and reminiscing. It's been wonderful. This week's episode was hosted by Anna Rose MacArthur. Producers for In Your Ears for 50 Years are Kristen Hall and Gabby Salgado. The theme music was performed by Bethy Whalen, Lisa Whalen, and Andy Angsman of the band Blue Whalen. You can catch up on old episodes by finding us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and NPR One. You can also find this show on kyuk.org under the Programs tab. Thank you.